0: You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar panels, wind turbines.
1: Well, you know, you'd have to take into account social costs of carbon, local air pollution, etc., but ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> And there are actually good reasons not to rely simply on a global economy-wide carbon price.
0: For February 22nd, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. The Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 created two tax credits potentially worth billions of dollars to encourage the development of a domestic clean hydrogen industry in the United States. Section 45 v created the Clean Hydrogen Production Tax Credit for clean hydrogen produced in the United States at a facility that was under construction before 2033. The amount of the credit varies depending on how much greenhouse gas was emitted in the production of the hydrogen, plus other adjustment factors, and can scale up to 2.6 cents per kilowatt hour of renewable electricity produced, plus up to $3 per kilogram of clean hydrogen produced. Section 48A created the Clean Hydrogen Investment Tax Credit, which provides up to a 6% investment tax credit for facilities that produce clean hydrogen, again based on a sliding scale depending on how much greenhouse gas was emitted per kilogram of hydrogen produced by the facility. This credit also has a number of eligibility requirements, including domestic content. Taking full advantage of these two tax credits, the production tax credit and the investment tax credit, could cut the cost of producing green hydrogen in half, down to nearly $3 per kilogram. That's still well above the current production cost of so-called gray hydrogen made from natural gas, which is currently only about $1 per kilogram without incentives. But it would put green hydrogen on a path to meeting the U.S. Department of Energy's cost targets for green hydrogen of $2 per kilogram by 2025 and $1 per kilogram by 2030. Now that all seems straightforward enough until you begin trying to determine exactly what the greenhouse gas emissions from a hydrogen production facility really are. Then it becomes a lot more complicated. So complicated that you really pretty much have to be a grid power expert to even begin to try to figure it out which is undoubtedly why the U.S. Internal Revenue Service, or IRS, issued a request for comments on how it should set the standards for qualifying for the new tax credits. One of the respondents was the San Francisco-based clean energy think tank, Energy Innovation, which submitted a very thoughtful 25-page response outlining some of the key issues the IRS should understand, the criteria it should consider, and some policy recommendations, as well as suggestions for how to prevent attempts to game the tax credit system. So today, I'm very pleased to welcome back our friend Eric Gimon, one of the Energy Innovation authors, to review their response to the IRS. Longtime listeners will recall his previous appearances on the show in episodes 20, 64, and 157. I wanted to review these recommendations with Eric not just because it's important that we all have confidence that these billions of dollars of public money will be well spent, but also because their recommendations reveal important insights about everything from how we go about building new renewable power plants to the varying carbon intensity of the power grid to the business case for building electrolyzers to produce green hydrogen. And yes, this is a Geek Rating 10 episode. Since it's been a while since I explained what our Geek Ratings mean, here's a refresher. Our geek ratings are not an indication of how good or sophisticated or advanced the discussion is, nor are they any sort of reflection on the expertise of our guests. They are just my personal subjective opinion of how esoteric the material is. If the discussion is something that just about anyone with, say, a high school education could follow, I'd give it a geek rating of 1. And if you pretty much have to be an expert in the topic to even follow the conversation, I'll give it a 10. And with apologies to those who are still getting up to speed on grid power, this conversation is definitely a 10. And just a quick note on some unfamiliar units you'll hear used in this episode. Much of this discussion is about the carbon emissions resulting from the production of hydrogen. So when you hear kilograms per kilogram, that refers to the kilograms of carbon dioxide emissions per kilogram of hydrogen produced. Another unit that may be unfamiliar is dollars per kilogram, which refers to the price of a kilogram of hydrogen. I hope that helps avoid any confusion. Then in the news segment, we'll follow up on episode 190 with a new Just Energy Transition program in Europe, we'll follow up on episodes 189 and 190 with a new white paper on the role of banks in addressing climate change, and we'll see how three of the major subsea transmission cable projects are coming along. But before we go to the interview, we'd like to extend a warm welcome to our latest group subscriber, NextEra Energy Resources. Formerly known as FPL Energy, it is a wholesale electricity supplier based in Juneau Beach, Florida, and a subsidiary of NextEra Energy, and it bills itself as America's premier clean energy leader and the world's largest producer of wind and solar energy. We are so pleased to have them listening to the show. And now our conversation with Eric Gimon, recorded January 27th, 2023. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Eric, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you, Chris. In December, you and your colleagues at Energy Innovation submitted a response to a request for comments issued by the IRS, which is seeking input from stakeholders on some of the energy tax benefits in the Inflation Reduction Act. Your comments focused on IRS Notice 2022-58, which requested comments related to the credit for the production of clean hydrogen and clean fuel production credit. So this is a hot topic because considerable sums of public money from the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, are about to be distributed in support of generating clean hydrogen. And there are a great many details to be understood in that seemingly simple phrase, clean hydrogen, (laughs) which we are going to explore today. But before we get into all that, maybe you could just explain why it's important that we get this right.
1: Yeah, thanks, Chris. Well, I think what's really important about getting this right is that hydrogen production is a very energy-intensive activity. And if we were to replace all the so-called gray hydrogen today that's produced from steam methane reform, that would consume a significant fraction of all the clean energy that's produced today. So take, for example... The way that hydrogen is made today is usually done in a process called steam methane reformation. And the associated emissions are about 10 kilograms of CO2 equivalent for every kilogram hydrogen that you make. The cleanest standard for making hydrogen with the highest tax credit is 0.45 kilograms per kilogram hydrogen made. If you made hydrogen from grid power, it depends on where you are. Some grids are cleaner than other, but it's between 20 and 40 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per kilogram of hydrogen. So it could be as much as 100 times the threshold for the cleanest standard that the IRA lays out. Wow. So that's a very important figure to keep in mind. This is not the same as, say, charging EVs from coal or something and saying, oh, well, it's not any better than gasoline. This this is potentially 100 times worse than the standard we're trying to achieve. just my quick head math
0: says that given the numbers you just explained, the standard for the tax credit, it would only allow CO2 emissions at about 5% of what you get when you're producing hydrogen from uh, steam methane reforming of natural gas. Right. Okay. So whether you're producing the hydrogen from natural gas or from electrolysis using grid power, we have to get way, way, way below those levels in order to qualify for these tax credits.
1: Right. And now remember that these tax credits, they're aimed at reducing emissions, but they're also aimed at like producing a viable technology because in terms of reducing emissions, they're already pretty expensive. If your goal is just to cut down the 10 kilograms a kilogram that producing hydrogen costs at the $3 a kilogram subsidy we're talking about, and I'm sorry, we keep throwing these numbers around, That amounts to about $300 a ton that you're paying for the mitigation of carbon. So it's a pretty juicy incentive today to promote this clean hydrogen. So Chris, if I looked at what it means to reduce all the emissions from steam methane reform to have a perfectly clean hydrogen, and then I paid the $3 a kilogram subsidy that the IRA is providing, that amounts to about $300 a ton in subsidies for carbon removal. And that's a pretty juicy subsidy right there just for any kind of carbon removal. Yeah. Now, what we're concerned about is if you're actually creating carbon in this hydrogen process.
0: Right. You have to come up with a net carbon reduction ultimately, or else this whole project is just a giant waste of time. All right. So, To be very clear, what we're discussing today is the various ways of estimating the carbon emissions that will result from using electrolyzers to break hydrogen out of water. We're not going to talk about the other ways of producing hydrogen that we just mentioned, like steam reforming of natural gas, which is how nearly all commercial hydrogen is produced today. I can't remember the number. It's like 98% plus. We're strictly talking about using electricity to run electrolyzers that use electrolysis to break hydrogen out of water. And by the way, those who are new to the topic of hydrogen and the various ways of producing it, along with the various challenges involved in scaling up the global electrolyzer industry, might want to listen to episodes 142, 143, and 147 before we listen to this one because we covered all that. But anyway, that's important because that's how the IRA funds are targeted, right?
1: Yes. What's very important about the IRA funds is that they have a explicit upstream emissions target for the hydrogen. They don't say anything about how the hydrogen ends up being used, but they say, if you make the hydrogen, we'll give you a tax credit based on how much you emit upstream of that. And there's four or five different categories. And the easiest category to match is four kilograms per kilogram. So a tenth of using grid power in the Midwest or just under half of SMR. And then the juiciest one, it comes in at 0.45 kilograms per kilogram, and that is provides you with a $3 a kilogram of hydrogen subsidy, which is a lot of money. So, for example, in December was announced a big kind of mega project in North Texas. It's going to build 1.4 gigawatts of wind and solar to feed a big hydrogen electrolysis complex. And that complex will produce 200 tons of hydrogen a day. And so we think over the lifetime of that project, between the tax credits they would get for making the wind and solar and then the tax and credits they get for making the hydrogen, that would work out to thirty billion dollars. Wow. On an initial investment capital of 14 billion. So it's a lot of money, just one project. So we yeah. have to get the rules right.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. So for one more bit of context here, we should mention a few of the issues that make it complicated to account for the emissions generated from a given clean hydrogen project and to measure how clean it really is. And you detail some of these in your comments. So why don't you give us a quick overview of what those issues are?
1: Okay. So we split them into multiple buckets. So the first and most difficult bucket is what people refer to as additionality. So imagine that you're in a grid today and you want to deliver 100 megawatt hours to a city, like Tucson or something. And that 50 megawatt hours come from some gas plant and 50 megawatt hours are coming from some wind solar resource. And then along comes an enterprising hydrogen project, and they want to use some of that clean power. So they take, of that 50, they'll take 10 for their project. 50 of the clean stuff, 10 of them will go to their project. And they can say, hey, look, we're using nice clean power from this wind and solar nearby to make our hydrogen. But the truth of the matter is that project was already selling. So... The people that were consuming that power before, they need the power from somewhere else. Well, the somewhere else is going to be from the gas plant because most of these fossil plants, they still have some room to increase their output. Whereas the clean stuff is always putting the electricity out as much as they can because they have zero marginal cost. There's no cost to producing more. They don't burn fuel. And so the net effect is that you've increased production from a fossil plant for those 10 megawatt hours. So even though you're saying that you're getting 10 megawatts of clean power, then that effect on the grid, then that upstream effect is more power being burned. And if you want to avoid that upstream effect, you would have to create a new source of clean power that produced those 10 megawatt hours for your project. Does that make sense?
0: Right, so the tricky part about this additionality concept is it's hard to answer because whether or not a given wind or solar farm might have been built anyway, is oftentimes a counterfactual, isn't it? It's just really hard to say whether or not this new demand from a hydrogen electrolysis operation actually caused the new wind or solar farm to be built, or whether it would have been built anyway, and they're just using
1: it. That's exactly right. So in the short term, it's pretty clear that if you don't build something new, then you're obviously using fossil. Over the longer term, you can say, hey, look, people can see that we're adding extra demand. Shouldn't you take that into account? It leads to what we think of as the additionality paradox. So when we talk to developers for clean energy and for green hydrogen or potential green hydrogen, what they'll say is, well, don't put this additionality requirement on us because you know it takes a long time to build a new project. It could take four years and you don't know if it's going to take three and a half years or four and a half years. So it's hard to sync up with finishing my hydrogen project and the bank isn't going to be happy because there was risk. How do they know that these things will happen at the same time? And blah, 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 blah. You know, a real sob story about how long it takes to build the renewables. And then when you say, well, that's creating an additionality problem, they're like, no, no, no. If we use power, there are other people who want that power. Somebody will build for them. And then you ask, well, how long will it take to build for them once you've used up something that's existing? Well, obviously, it should be the same time frame. So you can't really have both at the same time. Now, how to cut that, that Gordian knot, I think is going to be really interesting. Yeah. And I guess the danger here, Chris, is that because it's a bit complex, because it involves counterfactuals, people want to look the other way. They're like, ah, it's just let's not worry about it. But remember mm-hmm. what I told you earlier. If you're using grid power, you can be almost 100 times worse than the threshold you're trying to reach. So you don't have a lot of room to kind of half mess it up or just be almost right on this. The minute that you're even a bit off, you're talking about causing a lot of emissions. So that's our kind of number one priority, some kind of practical scheme for addressing additionality. We're not zealots, but we don't think you can push under the rug, which is pretty much what almost everybody who's not doing a kind of dedicated project like this Texas one I mentioned wants to do because they don't want to have to work on getting the new supply on board. Yeah. So that's additionality, uh, and we can come back to it if you want. The other two buckets are regionality and time matching.
0: All right, well, tell us more about this regionality issue. What does that mean?
1: Okay, suppose you deal with additionality. Suppose you arrange for a new project and it's all set to go. You know, you've got the Chris Nelder hydrogen facility in one place and you've got the Chris Nelder wind and solar park in some other place. Well, the wind and solar, its positive impact is displacing dirty stuff. But depending on where it is, it's going to displace more or less dirty stuff. I mean, if you're in California, there's no coal, there's a lot of renewables already. So you may be displacing some gas, or in Texas, you're mostly displacing gas. If you're in the upper Midwest, you're going to be displacing coal. So whether you're displacing gas or displacing coal, that could be 20 or 40 kilograms per kilogram kind of equivalent emissions impact. Meanwhile, where you consume, the power is also important. So if you put the Chris Nelder Energy Park in a place that's really dirty, and you put the Chris Nelder electrolyzer in a place that's really clean, then the net impact's pretty good, because you're using clean power, but you're displacing dirty stuff. If you put the Chris Nelder energy park in a place that's pretty clean already, and you put the Chris Nelder electrolyzer in a place that's dirty, then you got the reverse effect. And the impact could be up to, generally, something like 10 kilograms per kilogram, which is, again, way bigger than the 0.45 threshold. So you really can't ignore this regionality issue. You really need some kind of matching up of the source and the sink, at least in the same general territory, if you want to make an equivalency over carbon impacts. Got it.
0: Okay. And then finally, the third principle is time matching. So what does that entail?
1: Well, before we go to time matching, I just want to add another element to regionality that people are not used to thinking about, which is the issue of line losses. So if the Chris Nelder wind park is producing 100 megawatts, and the Chris Nelder electrolyzer is using up 100 megawatts. That's not all hunky-dory, because by the time the Chris Nelder power from the wind park gets to the electrolyzer, maybe 5% is already gone, lost to the wind analysis. And what makes up for it? Well, maybe somebody else's gas plant. And so now the Chris Nelder electrolyzer is using 95% clean stuff and 5% dirty stuff. And the 5% dirty stuff, like I told you before, it has such a big impact that it overwhelms things. So if my initial source was 100% clean, and now I've put in 5% stuff at 20 kilograms per kilogram, well, then the average of the two is one kilogram per kilogram, which is already twice the threshold you're trying to reach. So it's hmm. very important to think about things like line losses and so on, because the initial mismatch between grid power and super clean power is huge. Right. So it's a kind of part of the whole regionality package, I guess. Okay. Now let's get to time matching. This one's quite an interesting one because it's kind of a hot topic. Companies like Google and so on are really into the 24-7 accounting and so on. And that's great. We love that they're doing that. But we kind of looked at how much impact does that have on net emissions today or using 2021 data. And what we found is quite interesting, if you look at purely the time mismatch element, it can actually help in some places in the sense that your wind farm might displace more dirty stuff than your electrolyzer kind of causes. And the range is somewhere between minus one to plus one. So it's a range that really depends on where you are and it kind of straddles the standard. But compared to additionality, for example, which could be causing like 40, time matching seems a little less important. Now, later on, the grid five, six, seven years from now that's much cleaner, there could be a big difference. But in our analysis for today's grid, we don't see a lot. Now, this doesn't completely match up with other analyses that you might hear about. And so I want to just take a moment to explain why they might not match up. We hope you've enjoyed this free
0: sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. We discussed several recent Just Energy Transition funding announcements in Episode 190, but it was only later that I learned about another one, an 869 million euro fund that the EU's Just Transition Fund allocated to Spain in December. The funding is aimed at accelerating a Just Energy Transition in the country, which is looking to advance the phase out of its coal plants from its initial 2030 target. The funding will go toward energy efficiency, circular economy, renewable energy, and cleaning up the country's industry. It will also provide financing for a technological innovation hub focused on offshore renewable energy and energy storage, for energy efficiency retrofits of public buildings, and to explore the production of algal biofuels. And it will support efforts to diversify the economies of regions that will suffer economic losses when coal plants are shut down, and support job retraining for those who will lose their jobs. The approval of the Spanish Just Transition Partnership will open the door to additional funding under two other programs that are part of the EU's Just Transition mechanism, which could allocate around 55 billion euros through 2027 in the most affected regions across the EU. (music) Item 2. A white paper released by the Fed's Board of Governors in January warned that, as we discussed in episodes 189 and 190, major banks aren't financing nearly enough projects to meet global net zero climate targets. According to the paper, 30 of the world's major banks, 13 in North America, 10 in Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show. Kevin Melzheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant. And Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music. And you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.